The title of the study is Instruction Before Change. We're at that point here in the Gospel of Luke that everything's about to get radically different. Now, Jesus has told him that it's going to get radically different, hasn't he? He's told him that he's going to suffer. He's told him that they're going to betray him. They told him that he's going to die and that three days later he'll rise from the dead. But they're not, they're not buying what he's selling yet. They, they, you know, they're probably thinking, well, this is probably some metaphor. This is probably something that we don't fully understand. But they were not expecting um, what they were about to see. I'm here in just a... This on the evening that we are in, as we come into chapter 22, we'll pick up at verse 23. They've already had the Passover meal. But as Jesus is about to be arrested, and if we make it through to the end of the chapter, we'll see him be arrested here um, tonight. And at the latter verses, he's wanting to, first of all, build into them a bunch of really important lessons. And so that's what we're going to take a look at, beginning in verse 23 through 30. We're going to see him instruct them on servanthood. So let's read verses 23 through 30. Then they began to question among themselves which of them it was who would do this thing. So who was it that could possibly betray them? Now there was also a dispute among them, or an argument, right, as to which of them should be considered the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those who exercise authority over them that are called benefactors. But not so among you. On the contrary, he who is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he who governs as he who serves. For who is greater, he who sits at the table, or he who serves? Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. But you are those who have continued with me in my trials. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you got to know. When they got heard verses 29 and 30, they were blown away. Like, yes, I knew it. He is the one, and he is going to establish a kingdom. But it just wasn't going to come in the time that they wanted. But still, some, some amazing promises that he just gave to them. But it's in the context of being a servant. So in verses 23 and 24, um, the, the disciples were, were striving um, over which of them was going to be the, the greatest. So in verse 23, they're like, they're fighting over who could possibly be the one to betray them. And a lot of, probably a lot of finger pointing. And then in verse 24, there's fingers pointing at themselves and saying, I'm the greatest. So you're the kind of person that would betray Jesus, and I'm the kind of person that is, just happens to be the greatest among us all. And, and that is what the argument is. And, and actually, the word for greatest is the, uh, the root word um, in Greek is megos. Mega. I'm mega, you're micro, right? I mean, this is, this is the argument that's taking place. But if you think in verse 23, after Jesus has said, somebody's going to betray me here at the table, they, they begin to think, who is this? And, and I would imagine some began to jump to conclusions. <clears throat> Something I'm sure you've never done about somebody, have you? You've never jumped to a conclusion about somebody's motives or somebody's, uh, you know, desires or their commitment to something, have you? And, and we got to be so careful with this because the one that we know who it was, it was Judas, but it doesn't seem like anybody's expecting it to be Judas. They trust him. He's carrying the purse. He has the money. They're not thinking he's the one that's going to be the guy, but... He is the guy. and there, So there's all kinds of names that are probably being thrown out there as to who it is that would betray them. We would all do well to walk in love. 1 Corinthians 13 gives us a description of love. And one of those descriptors says that love hopes all things. And I want you to think about that in the context of a person's 
conduct and character. I'm not saying let's be naive and close our eyes when there is clear problems of sin and the Spirit of God maybe is even giving you a discernment that something's out of place. But when you just don't know and there's just a, the rambling of your mind or maybe even the gossip around a table, do you hope, do you believe that that person is going to do the right thing? Or are you already going to the, to the end, I'm sure they're going to make a mistake. And, uh, you know, I think each and every one of us wants to have people hoping that we will do the right thing, believing that we will do the right thing. And that's what love is. Love is believing all things. Love is hoping all things. I don't know, maybe sometimes we read that and we don't even put that into a context of how does hope and belief. But I, I hope and I believe that you're going to do the right thing. Well, I don't know if they're going to show up. Well, let's just, let's just believe that they will. Let's hope that they do. Let's pray for them right now that they will, whatever maybe you think they're going through. And, and yet that is not happening. They're not walking in love clearly because they're, they're, they're walking in, well, I guess they're walking in a form of love, self-love. I'm the greatest. I'm the one that can really take this thing to the next level. I'm the one, if it was Peter, I'm the one that gets revelations. I'm the one that walks on water. Yeah, but you're also the one that gets rebuked and sinks. So I don't know that we want to follow you. You know, So you can imagine the tension that was going on. This was an argument in verse 24 that began down in Jericho on the way up. So Jericho's you know, down by the Dead Sea, right? So one of the lowest places on earth. And as they come up from Jericho, um, and Jericho is just geography, it's just to the just to the north of the Dead Sea. So you got that in mind of how low it is. And so now they're going to walk all the way up to Jerusalem. And as they make this, this journey upwards, of course, they meet blind Bartimaeus. Have mercy on me, son of David. Be quiet. And the, loud, and the more they told him to be quiet, the louder he cried out. Have mercy. Probably reached a screeching level. And Jesus is like, bring him here. And he heals him. But on the way up from there, they argue, who's the greatest? And Jesus even asks them, what are you guys talking about? Nothing, nothing. We weren't talking about anything. It's just stuff, Lord, just fishing stuff. You probably wouldn't care. You know, they, they weren't going to say, well, we were arguing over which one of us was actually uh, mega. And um, they, weren't going to, they weren't going to do that. But Jesus knew, of course. And in verses 25 through 26, he's going to address this dispute of who's to be considered greatest. And he's going to give them four truths that I believe we should cling to on how to be great. Here's the thing. Jesus is not saying don't desire to be great. He's not saying that. He's not saying don't be great. He's saying be great, but here's how you be great. Let me define for you what greatness is. Because when the Lord looks at somebody that walks out these four truths in their life, the Lord looks at that and says, that is a great man. That is a great woman. And so you can be great. We should desire to be great. But great for the glory in the name of the Lord, not great for my own purposes. So let's read there in verse 25. Well, we already read it. But verse 25, he tells them to be different. He says, the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And um, they love to be called benefactors, right? You know, they, they want this honor. But verse 26, but not so among you. We don't do this. We're going to be different than the world. The world operates on a level of greatness, and they want to have lordship. They want to have power. They want to have influence. They want to have control over other people. Um, but that's not what you're going to do. That's not what this is going to look like. So, you, you know, of course, they were arguing for who was going to be the greatest in the worldly sense of it, in the Gentile lordship sense of it. And Jesus says, oh, you want to be great? Okay, that's all right. No problem with that. But this is what you got to do. You got to make certain that you're nothing like what the world is like. That's not how we do it. That's not how we get things done in the kingdom. So the disciples had a very carnal and worldly understanding of greatness. And of course, all around them were leaders in their nation that were walking just like that. So it's what they had seen, 
Of course, they're seeing something totally different in Jesus, and he's going to bring them out. But that desire for power and authority are dangerous ambitions. I remember when I was in seminary in Australia, and I was walking down the hall, and I heard a couple of guys talking. And um, these guys said, yeah, I I just can't wait. This is what he said. He goes, I just can't wait till I have my own pastorate. He goes, then that way I'll have everybody else doing stuff, and I won't have to be doing the stuff I'm doing right now. And I thought, man, I hope you're not a pastor because you don't get it. You have no idea of what it means from Jesus to be a pastor. I remember a friend of mine, Nanda, um, sharing with me when he was teaching. um, Well, actually, he wasn't teaching on this subject, but it was a common teaching that he brought to the pastors um, over in Nepal of being a servant. But he was talking with this one guy, and he says, I hate it when people call me a servant. I don't want to be a servant. I want to be great. It's like, oh, well, if you want to be great, then you got to be a servant. But, but this is the, the, the way we get twisted up in our thinking. So Jesus instructs them that they are not to exercise lordship. I can't wait till I get in that position because then I can really snap, you know, everybody into line and make them do it. And that's, that's not the way you do it. Now, listen, do people in authority and leadership, even in the kingdom, even within the church, do that? Sadly, yes. You probably have met at least one of them yourself at some point in time. I'm sure even if you haven't walked it out, you've had these feelings and these attitudes. But you've probably seen people that walk like that. And and how unfortunate. So we're going to be different. We're not going to do it the way the world does it. You know, look at the world and how they, they, they lead and then flip it on its head. And that's how you've got to do it. Um, and this is one reason for me why I'm so resistant. And I'm not saying there's nothing to be gleaned. But knowing this, so resistant against, you know, going into the world and finding out and discovering leadership principles. Listen, we have the greatest leader who's ever walked the earth, Jesus. And he's telling us what to do. And it's very simple, and it's very easy to access. So number one, be different. Number two, um, he's, he tells them to be the younger. So <clears throat> don't be like these guys who want to exercise power. Let's do something different, um, he's telling them. And that is that you are to conduct yourself as the one who is the younger. And that's there in verse 26. It says, who is greatest among you? Let him be as the younger and he who governs as he who serves. So if you have a place of governorship, then be like one who serves. you got to still fulfill that. But the way in which you walk it out is with a servant heart. Be the younger. And we've talked about this as we've gone through. Is that Jesus talked about you come to me as, to a, as, as like a little child. What is it about being the younger and being the child? Last. The youngest is Last. They would get the least of all the duties that they were capable to perform. They would have the least of all the duties in the house. If you were a servant and there were 10 servants in in the house and you were servant number 10, you would have that younger kind of position. So you would be the one that would have the least amount of influence. Be the younger. Now, does the Lord want us to have influence for his glory and for his name absolutely but the way you go about doing it is by being the younger and not trying to influence and not trying to seize and the more you try to seize and the more you try to push people um, you know because of the authority you have exhort them in the name of the Lord absolutely all day long yes we, we are called to do that right but to try and, and manhandle people, to get them what you want to do because you have a position of authority. You know who you're talking to? You're talking to, and you fill in the blank of your position. It's like, wait, no, you're, do you know who you're talking to? You're talking to the least. You're talking to the youngest. That's, that's how it should be answered. So greatness in the kingdom of God is not found by lording, but by being least. So the opposite of lording is being least. And this is what the Lord is encouraging them to do. When we choose to be great and be last, 
We pave a way for peace in relationships, don't we? You know what is at the heart of so many disputes and arguments? And I'm not going to say everyone because there could be other things. But you know what's at the heart of so many arguments and disputes? Is the desire to be first. The desire to be the one that's loudest and heard the most. And is this is a problem. But if you're willing to take last place in conversation you will find that this is going to pave a way for peace if it can come. Well, what if it can't come? Then walk away from the argument anyway, right? So even if you taking the last place is not going to allow the, argu- the argument to be resolved, you, still, you just walk away. Because we're told not to throw our pearls before swine. We're not to engage in that kind of thing. So if you being last does not bring the peace, then it's an argument that you should walk away from anyway. Be last. Be willing to just take the least position. Yeah, but if I don't stand up for my rights and demand what's rightfully mine, then I'm not going to get it. Hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought. We'll come back to it. All right, move on. Third point, be a servant. So, you know, the first idea is that we should be different. We should be the younger. We should be a servant. A servant is one who spends his time and energies helping others, trying to fulfill their desires, filling, fulfilling their purposes, doing the best for another person. And the key to overcoming the drive for acknowledgement and power, something that Jesus had said don't do, is to be active in the role of putting the needs of others before your own. So, I mean, how do you if, you, if you have this drive, and within all of us, it, it does exist, you know, outside of walking the Spirit and being reformed by the, you know, the, the ways of the Lord, if we desire that, how do you deal with that? One of the ways you deal with that is just by being proactive and being a servant. Because what you and I will find as we walk out that I, you know, being a servant is that it's a great way to do life. And you're going to see the blessing of it. You're going to see the fulfillment of it. You're going to see the joy of it. Of it. Isn't this what Jesus um, said? And, and we don't have it here in, in what we just read. But in John chapter 13, it's the same context, same night, same scene. And Jesus washes their feet in John chapter 13, right? And he gets up and he washes their feet. And then in John chapter 13, verse 17, Jesus says, Happy are you if you know these things and what? Do them. You see, so if you and I will walk out being a servant, being proactive and putting the needs of other people's first, Jesus says you're going to be happy. And when you are walking that out and now you're having that, that, that happiness, that joy come to your life, you're going to be all right. You're going to say, wait a minute, I, I like this. This is a great place to be, is being a servant. And so it's a way to overcome that drive. Greatness in the kingdom of God is found in serving one another, being the least, being different. And so this is what we've been called to do. Matthew 16, 25 says, For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Well, in this context, lose your life for the people all around you and putting them first and serving them, and you're going to find out what it really means to live. The most miserable people are the people that don't serve others. The most miserable people are those who are constantly trying to get everybody to come and serve them. So if there's some unhappiness in your life, this might be a great point to ponder. Maybe there's some application there. Husband, be the servant leader of the house. Model it. Well, yeah, but you know... I just, I've got this and I've got that. Listen, Jesus has told you to be a servant and to put the needs of others first. Well, yeah, but I'm the leader of the home. And if I'm the leader of the home and I serve, then I'm going to give up that place of authority. You're twisted. Just telling you straight up, you're twisted in your thinking. Jesus says, I serve. And you're not greater than Jesus. And I'm not greater than Jesus. Be a servant. And find out the joy. Now in verse 27, um, we get our last point. It says, for whoever is greater is he who sits at the table or he who serves. Is it not he who sits at the table? Yet I am among you as one who serves. The point here is what? Be like me. So 
have a different thought. Um, be the younger. Be the servant. Be like me. Do what I'm doing. I've just washed your feet. I've just, I've just stood up and took the least position. If you had what we find out from the culture of that day, again, if you had 10 servants in your house, number 10 would be the one that would wash the feet. If you had five kids, you're, the youngest child that was capable would be the one to wash the feet. There were 12 of them in the room. Excuse me. There was 13 of them in the room. And Jesus was the one who washed their feet. This is why Peter protests. He says, Not, no, 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 you can't do this. He's like, Peter, if you don't let me do this, you just you don't have any partner with me. Well, okay, then, you know, I'm all in. And, and so, but Jesus is asking us to just to be like him. So if you find resistance in this idea of being a servant and, and being the least and being different, then understand that what you're fighting against is being like Jesus. This is the way he did it. And he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He created everything with, <clears throat> with just the breath of his mouth. Everything that exists, exists because he spoke it into existence. And as it says in Colossians, he, he also holds it all together, right? He holds it. I mean, this is, this is a person who is the greatest. And yet he came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life a ransom. And so we have this model. So if you find yourself at this place of just thinking, well, I just don't know that I can do this or I should do this, remember that Jesus did it. Yeah, but you know, if I do that, you know, people may think that they have an angle on me and they can take advantage of me. Oh, you mean like Judas did with Jesus? And he knew it was going to happen? He washed his feet. So yeah, you know, can you be taken advantage of when you are serving yeah, you can. But at least you're doing it for the name of the Lord and you're in good company because Jesus too was taken advantage of. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe what Jesus has to say? Do you believe that this is the way to do it? Do you believe that this is really going to bring happiness in your life? I hope you do. Now in verses 28 through 30, the Lord promises a kingdom. Remember I said, that thought of, well, if I, if I am a servant and I'm last and I'm least and I, you know, I'm not doing it the way the world does, I may be taken advantage of. I may not get what's mine. I might be left out. <clears throat> well, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm going to give you a kingdom and you're going to sit at my table. You're not going to serve at my table. I'm going to have you sit at my table. Because he just talked about who's greater, he who sits or he who serves. He said, well, I'm telling you, I'm gonna, I have a kingdom that I'm going to establish, and you're going to come, and you're going to sit at my table. But not only that, you also are going to sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. How about that? And so this idea that in this lifetime we have to grab stuff and hold on to it and get as much as we can lest we not get our own is just it's, it's wrong-headed thinking. Blessed are the meek, for they shall what? You're going to get the whole thing. In the kingdom, you're going to get the whole thing. You're going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And, and what is it that you're, you're clamoring for and fighting for and scratching for and clawing for? And All right. So it's a good exhortation to us, isn't it? That there's a kingdom that is coming and there's going to be a place. Now, specifically <clears throat> to these guys. Now, it's interesting. We know Judas is not one of the twelve. So 11, so there's one that's got to be replaced. Is going to be replaced. Is it, is it Matthias or is it the Apostle Paul? Another discussion. But um, it's in Acts, they choose Matthias, but you'll wonder, was that the right choice? But anyway, there's, there's going to be 12 that are going to be in that place. What an amazing promise that he's giving them. Could you imagine sitting there and hearing Jesus saying, now I'm going to have a kingdom. And in this kingdom, you're going to come and you're going to sit at my table. And... You also are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Can you imagine how that must have filled their mind with amazement and wonder and awe? But what is clear here is that Jesus is going to have a kingdom, isn't he? And that kingdom is going to be specifically for the nation of Israel. And these guys were going to be ruling it. So those who would say there is no 
literal kingdom coming, then I'm, uh, what is Jesus promising them? Because I guarantee you, they're, they're not thinking of something metaphorical or figurative. They're thinking about a literal kingdom. So listen, the point that I'm trying to make here is the Lord is promising a kingdom to them. He's promising a kingdom to you. He's promising that you're going to get everything that you could ever possibly want. Now don't think of indulgence, but just think of having the Lord give you according to his desires. Do you really have to scratch and claw for what is yours if you see it escaping? Can't you just take the least position knowing that you win in the end? It's like, go ahead, take it away. I don't care. Take it away. You want to take that away? Okay. I know what I'm getting in the end. And it's interesting in John chapter 13 because Jesus is saying, when he washes the feet, it says, and Jesus you know, rose from the table knowing who he was and where he had come from and where he was going. He knew that he was part of a kingdom. He knew he had come from the Father, and he knew he was going to the Father, and he was going to kingdom. Why, why am I going to worry about these guys who don't stand up and walk out what you know, would have been customary of the day and wash feet? Certainly, I mean, Jesus didn't have a, a problem understanding that he was greater than them because he was the Son of God. He understood that. But, and, and so they should have stood up and did that. But Jesus had no problem also being a servant. That's why he came. So be at peace. You're going to get it all. You're going to get it all. And it's going to be better than you can ever imagine. So let's be great. Let's be great. Let's be mega for the glory in the name of the Lord. So some awesome teaching there. He, you know, of course, he's about to be arrested He's going to be on the cross in just a few short hours. And his A-team, the apostles, right, they are fighting over who's greatest. It's like, man, i got to get this straight. So he gives them some instruction. But then in verses 31 through 38, he's going to give them some instruction on hardship as well. Because they're going to go through some hard times. And it's going to be a different kind of a situation. Let's read here, beginning at verse 31. It says, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed... Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me. Deny three times that you know me. And he said to them, I sent you without money bag, knapsack, and sandals. Did you lack anything? Nothing, they said. And he said to them, but now he who has a money bag, let him take it. And likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. For I say to you, that which is written must still be accomplished in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. That's what's going to happen. I'm going to be arrested. <coughs> For the things concerning me have an end. So they said, look, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, all right, that's enough. <laughs> and, and it's interesting, if, uh, what does this mean? As he says, enough of this conversation. Two swords will suffice for the fight you're going to be in. What does he mean when he says it's enough? And we'll talk about that in, in just a moment as we work our way down through there. But he's going to give him instruction on hardship. And the first thing that we see is that you have an enemy, verses 31 through 34. Peter, Simon, Satan has asked for you. He has you in his crosshairs. And I prayed for you that you would not fail um, when you return to me. Okay, so he's going to fail. He's going to fail. And um, he's going to miss the mark. And we know his story. 1 Peter 5a says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Oh, Peter knew something about that, didn't he? Peter knew something about Satan looking to take a person out, because he experienced it. But the Lord is saying, I've prayed for you. Now, Satan's, his whole goal is to stop redemption. He, you know, we can go back to Genesis, and he seeks to stop the lineage of Christ. And we see all the problems with uh, 
You know, those that were in the line of Christ and the women having children, we, we spent a lot of time on that. We, we see that when Jesus was about to be born, he, um, he was hard at work to make certain that all the young males there in Bethlehem were going to be wiped out. He's still working to blind men today from the person of Jesus Christ. And he is still trying to devour those who have put their faith and trust. He is all against redemption. Satan is against everything that the Lord is for. And this is who Peter um, was being told to be careful of and to be aware. Hey, he's asked for you. He's coming for you. But I've prayed for you. Isn't it good to know that the Lord prays for us? We read this in Romans that he makes intercession for us. Um, And Peter's response in verse 33. Now listen. How should have he responded? I guess he should have responded with falling to his knees and saying, Lord, you said when I return to you, that would mean I, uh, that I'm going to fail. I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to miss the mark. Oh, Lord, give me grace. What do I need to do so that I won't? And that, and that would have been the right response. Now, the response in verse 33, you know, and I think that a lot of pastors have kind of pummeled pe- uh, Peter on this. He says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And they talk about the pride and the arrogance of his heart. Well, okay, I guess because he doesn't, doesn't acknowledge what the Lord says is that you're going to have to return to me. But what do you want him to say here if he's not saying, Lord, please help me? Yeah, you're probably right. I've been contemplating for a long time, failing in my faith and actually turning you in. I mean, we don't want to hear that. There's a resolve that Peter has that is admirable, Right? I mean, this is what all of us should say. You know, and I, I love to paint these scenarios out of my own mind. If everything was to turn and, a, you know, persecution was to come and trouble was to come and I had to make a, a statement or this thing happened or this unfortunate or this tragic evil thing happened to my life and my family, you know, what would I do? And I always, I play this scenario out and I always win in the name of the Lord because I expect his grace to come to me. And I'm like, I, but the way it sounds is, Lord, I know that I could not stand, but I fully know that you're going to be there to give me the grace that I need. So, Lord, I'm going to stand. So I try to take, you know, this idea that we have an enemy and he wants to put us down. But, I mean, and don't say, yeah, I could never. If that happened in my life, I could never follow Jesus. I would, why would you say that? Now, if you're looking at yourself and saying, I just don't have what it takes, all right, I got that. But don't say that you would deny the Lord. Say, outside of the grace of God, there's no way I could stand. I think we should anticipate and expect and believe for the power and the grace of God to show up. Now, listen, you don't raise your hand. You don't have to raise your hand. But I know there's some news junkies out there. And you're watching and you're looking and you're paying attention and you're, it's just like it can begin to overcome you. It can begin to worry you and consume you. And you're thinking, oh, no, it's going to come here. It's going to come here. All right, if it's going to come, it's going to come. And you're going to stand victorious because Jesus is going to help you. And you're going to stand fast. And we've already been told that hard times are going to come. So, so don't fret over what may um, come to this country. We just need to keep our eyes on the Lord. And it doesn't matter how much fretting I do. I'm not going to change the outcome. I could fret and I could come up with a perfect scenario but of you know, how all this could be worked out. But, you know, what's going to happen is going to happen. And um, we know that it's common for the church to, to go through difficulty and hardship. So he tells them, things are going to change. Do you remember when I sent you out and you didn't need money and everything was okay? Yeah, it was awesome. He goes, well, it's going to be different now. That's going to change. You know, things are going to get really, really um, hard. And so, um, you know, he, he's telling him, Peter, you're going to fail. You're going to deny me three times. And that's what happens. But 35 through 38, all things are going to get really tough. It's, going to, it's about to get rough, boys, because it's not going to be the same. And I'm going to be numbered with the transgressors. I'm going to be arrested. I'm not going to just walk through the crowd this time. I'm not going to just, you know, resist them. I'm going to be arrested. And it's going to be different. And so when you go out, you're going to need to, you need to, you're going to, need to take that purse with you. You're going to need to make sure you got your clothes. You're going to need some swords. So what does it mean, though, when Jesus says take a sword? 
And this is the question. Is this a reference to plan for personal protection? It may be. It may be. But whatever your conclusion is, don't, don't use the Constitution to help interpret this passage, okay? You know, use, use the Bible here, all right? So I think we can, can, we can conflate some of our uh, Bill of Rights, you know, with our faith. And there might be a place that, you know, these are truths that are found in Scripture. But I just, you know, don't just jump to it. If it is an admonition for personal protection, you've got some, uh, you have some other verses you've got to overcome. If somebody slaps you across the face, turn the other cheek. Don't resist an evil person. So, I mean, you have to deal with some other passages, and I don't want to get off all into it. So the way you take the, you're either going to take this literally as personal protection, or you take it literally as crusades. <laughs> you know, we're going to go and we're going to convert people by the edge of the sword. Or you could take this and say, metaphor, you're, gonna, you're, you're headed for some difficult times. And this, his saying you need to get some swords is, it's about to get really different. It's going to be very different, guys. You're, I told you not to take a knapsack. I'm telling you, take a knapsack. You're going to have to plan for these things. It's going di- to be very different when I'm gone. Now listen, the Lord is with us, and he helps us, and he sees us through. But you got to know that it was different. It was very different for them to... To go from having Jesus in their midst to not having Jesus in their midst. Spirit within them for sure. But Jesus is just preparing them for the rough road that they are about to face. So uh, let me just read to you uh, um, uh, Robert Stein on this idea, this passage. He says, Understand, understood as a call to arms, this saying not only does not fit Jesus' other teaching, but radically conflicts with them. Also, if two swords are enough, war with the legions of Rome was certainly not envisioned. Uh, He says the context is the sword is best understood as a metaphorical sense as indicating being spiritually armed and prepared for battle against spiritual foes. One that Peter was just told he is about to have a fight with. He's asking for you. The desperate need to be armed for these future events is evident by the command to sell one's mantle for his garment was essential to be kept warm at night. So um, people land on different places, sometimes um, even based on the time of world history. Um, The interpretation falls into a certain place. So I, 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 yeah, I I would make a soft land on this is a metaphor. Um, I think there's a larger discussion to be had around the whole idea of personal protection. I don't know that we want to go from this passage forward, though. That would be my, my take. Now, in verses 39 through 46, he's going to give them some instruction on prayer. So he gave them instruction on some, you know, the rough times. He's given them instruction on being a servant. Um, he's just told them they're about, everything's going to change. You're going you're gonna to have to have a sword. You're going to be in conflict now. This is, you guys are about to find yourself in conflict. So in verses 39 through 46, he's going to tell them, how to pray. So let's read verse 39 and 40. He says, Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives, and as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. Peter, I told you, you're going to deny me. So what you need to do is to pray for temptation. I think we need to, we need to relearn this point like seven times a week. The way to stand against temptation is through what? Prayer. Why is that so hard for us to learn and remember and walk it out? We stand in the midst of the storm trying to blow us off of the precipice by hitting our knees. Not standing there with our arms wide open trying to catch as much wind as possible. Right? Get down low. Get on your knees in the storm so that you won't be blown off. This is how you are going to stand. Prayer prepares our heart for temptation, three points, by warning us. Haven't you been warned of something as you prayed? And the Lord's whispered into your ear, watch out for this. This is coming. 
be alert. The Spirit will speak to us as we are in that point of prayer. So prayer prepares our heart for temptation by warning us, by strengthening our spirit for battle against the flesh. You will be strengthened in prayer. I will be strengthened in prayer. Where is that area where you fall and hit the ground most in, in, um, in your walk with the Lord? Pray. That's the answer. And just so you know, when we do, I know you know this, but knowing that you should pray does not count as praying. You might want to write that down. I need to write that down. You know, knowing it does not accomplish the same thing as doing it. And, and the third thing, and I think this is an, a, an interesting point, and you can just kind of work it on your own mind. Again, prayer prepares our heart for temptation by warning us, strengthening our spirit, and thirdly, by making us content in the relationship we have with God. How does that tie into temptation? Well, what is temptation? Temptation is an offer for something else. Usually, our flesh is saying, and this is better. But if you are enjoying the presence of God, what could possibly be a temptation to be better than that? So, when Troy Warner falls to temptation, it is because he is not content in his that relationship with the Lord. Something else seems like a better way at that moment. But when we are full of the presence of the Lord and him in my life, and Satan comes along and says, well, why don't you deny him? We're like, are you kidding me? It's like if somebody, you know, you got a, I don't know. I don't have a good, I'm tired. What's a good illustration? So you have a brand new iPad and you, somebody comes up to you and says, listen, I want to give you you know, this little uh, tablet I bought, it's no name on it. I bought it for five bucks at a, at a swap meet, a flea market. Are you willing to? Are you kidding me? No, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but look at this. No, I know what I have and I know what you have and I am not going to do that. And you wouldn't even be tempted to give up something of such great value for something that is a piece of junk that won't even turn on. And so we got to know the greatness of our, our relationship with the Lord. So prayer prepares our heart for temptation. As Jesus said, pray that you may not enter temptation by warning us, strengthening us, and making us content in the relationship we have with God. It fills us up. In verses 41 through 44, Jesus models it. He goes out. He clings to God in prayer. And he was withdrawn when he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will... Take this cup away from me. I don't want to go to the cross if it's not your will. If this isn't really what needs to happen, I don't want to go. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is, my flesh doesn't want to go and be, you know, ripped apart. I don't want to do that. But if that's what you want, then that's what I want. So I'm just being, you know, the Lord is pouring out his heart. And so maybe you have felt like you've told the Lord something that you wanted and you've still gone through the trial. And fortunately, what happens sometimes is we think, oh, God hasn't been, he didn't hear my prayer. Are you sure? Because if, if, if it means he didn't hear your prayer, then what do we do with this right here? Did the Father not hear his prayer? No, the Father heard his prayer. And he said, I want you to go through, I want you to drink the cup, son. Redemption is on the line. There's something greater. And so if the Lord has allowed you to go through something you prayed to not go through, there's something greater for the kingdom and the glory of God. And you need to find out what that is. And you need to believe that. Um, verse 43, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him, and being in agony. Not, you know, he's no nails yet. This is emotional. This is spiritual. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then, he sweat, then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Where is Jesus when this is happening? The Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane is an Aramaic word, and it means olive press. How do you get the oil from an olive? You press it with olive all kinds of pressure. It's heavy stones rolling over and squeezing it out. Jesus is 
under agony. And he is being pressed. And he's even sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. What an what interesting picture to ponder there. But Jesus, is, he understands what's about to happen in just a few short moments. In verses 45, 46, the disciples forsake. Jesus clings to prayer in verses 41 through 44. The disciples forsake prayer for sleep. When he rose up from prayer and come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray lest you enter into temptation. He's serious about it. You can overcome this temptation if you will pray. And, uh, you know, he doesn't berate them. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't call them names. He doesn't call them losers or anything like that. So if you ever are calling yourself that and thinking the Lord is speaking those things, do you know that he does not talk that way? You're such a loser. You can't even pray. You're a terrible Christian. That's, that's condemnation. That is not Jesus. That's not conviction. Conviction will draw you to the right conclusion but you'll feel drawn into it. Condemnation will beat you up and you'll feel like you should run away from the right thing. Good way to know the difference. I mean, look how he's correcting them. I mean, there's so many things that Jesus could have said right at this moment. I'm bleeding. Can you see this? Look at this. What do you, why do you think this is happening? I mean, you just imagine all the things that he could have said to them, but he, he just says, you're going to enter temptation. I'm concerned for you. And you don't see the value of praying. How sad. Our failure to pray as we ought to results in a failure of faith. Missing answers to our prayers, right? James 4.2, you have not because you ask not. Um, you know, prayer is an important thing for us to do. Um, it results in sin. 1 Samuel 12.23, <coughs> He says, as for me, far be for me that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Prayerlessness is a sin. Prayerlessness is not just some other option in the Christian faith you can engage in if you want to or not. It's a sin to not. Jesus asked the question elsewhere, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? I mean, just a few chapters earlier. And, and that was in the context of praying. <clears throat> Prayer and the word of God are two things that will give us the ability to stand in the midst of temptation. And so I don't want anybody to be beat up here, but I'm just going to ask very gently, what are you doing to stand in the midst of temptation? What are you doing? And the last two years, we saw a lot of people get kind of swept up, didn't we? And swept out. From their faith. They were not ready for the moment. Who knew the moment was coming? We didn't know the moment was coming. That's why it says, put on the full armor of God that you might be able to stand in the what day? Evil day. You don't know when the evil day is coming. The evil day came and a lot of believers were not ready for it. And they are not anywhere near walking with Jesus. They weren't ready for the moment. Well, what's, when's it coming again? What do I need to do? You need to pray. You need to be in the word. These two things will get you ready. Then in verses 47 through 53, Judas comes to the garden, having gone and betrayed Jesus. And we read verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, a multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve went before them and drew near to Jesus uh, to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying me with a kiss? I'm, I, I feel, I don't know how he said it. Of course, he can't be emphatic, but I feel pretty confident he said it kind of like this. Judas, with a kiss? You're going you're gonna to betray me with a kiss? I mean, what the height of hypocrisy. Just be real, man, with what you're doing. Are you going to do it while still feigning love? So he showed love with his lips, but yet his heart was far from the Lord. Verse 49, when those around him saw what was going on, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? So some asked and some didn't. And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But he answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. So Peter is the guy that's striking. 
What did he say? I'm willing to die. I'm willing to go to prison. I mean, I, that's really where he was. I mean, a whole multitude came. And he was willing to go for it. Now, it's dark. <clears throat> and, and what we learn from this is either Peter was a highly skilled man with a sword. And in the middle of a fight at night in the dark could get just the ear he was aiming for. Or he was going for something a little more deadly. And he missed. I think he missed. I don't think he was going for an ear. I think he was going for the whole thing. And that's what he got. And so he was, I mean, he, he had a resolve, but he hadn't prepared himself for what was about to happen. <clears throat> Isn't it amazing to you that upon the ear coming off, the man screaming, and then Jesus putting the ear back on, that they said, okay, now we're here to arrest you. I mean, it's just like, I mean, don't, do you not see this? And, and actually, in John, well, actually, let's, let's keep reading a few more verses and we'll get to that John passage. Uh, verse 52, and then Jesus said to the chief priests, <coughs> captains of the temple, the elders who had come to him, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs? When I was daily in your temple, you did not try to seize me, cowards. You guys are cowards. Eh, but this is your hour. This is the kind of time you like to operate. In the shadows, in the shade, when nobody's watching. But this is, this is, this is your mode of operating. It's an insult. And the power of darkness. This is what you're all about. And so, I mean, Jesus does not um, hold back the rebuke from them. Who's in charge of this situation? The ones arresting or Jesus? Well, let me read to you that John 18 passage. I think I've got it here. John 18, verse 4. It says, Jesus, therefore, knowing all... And so this is, right, this is all same time. Knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? So this is the garden scene, but through John's uh, testimony... They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. Now when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell on the ground. Then they asked him again, who are you seeking? And they said, nobody. That's what I, I mean, that would have been the right thing to say. You know what, forget this. I don't know whose plan this was, but your ears are falling off and getting back on. I mean, we, you, I mean, just by saying I am and we fall to the ground, we're not going to arrest you. Nobody. But no, they said, we're after you. And so, but who's in charge? The Lord is submitting to this whole scene here. In verses 54 through 62, Peter denies the Lord and this is a passage, I'm going to hit these points so fast, write them down, contemplate them, talk about them. Peter's going to deny the Lord here, and we're going to see three things that he does that are just unfortunate. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house. But Peter followed at a distance. Now when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard, they sat down together. Peter sat among them. And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him, but he denied him, saying, Woman, I don't know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, You also are of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. Then after about an hour passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, Surely this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're saying. Immediately while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. So they're, they're in the same courtyard. I mean, this isn't like, you know, different rooms. He is denying Jesus, and he's looking at him while he's doing it. When the rooster crowed, Jesus turned to him. Wow. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out and wept bitterly. So what's the problem here? Well, first and foremost, he didn't pray. And then, in verse 54, he follows at a distance. Not good to follow Jesus at a distance, no matter what's going on. 
And then verse 55, he sits among the, the enemies. He's getting comfort from their fire. He's, getting, he's drawing something from these people. It's fine to have friendships, and it's fine to have relationships. I'll call relationships with people you know, outside of Christ. However, if you are driving something that is desperately needed in your life, you are in a vulnerable position. You should be there to give them life and give them the gospel. And so he, the, and he knew what to say, but he's drawing something from And then eventually he ends up denying the Lord. He denies him, just like Jesus said. So I, I, you know, think about those points. Make sure that you pray. Make sure that you follow close. Make sure that you're keeping company among the people of God, the friends of Jesus, and that you're continuing to affirm your faith in the Lord. We wrap it up here, verse 63 through 71. Uh, and I'm just going to read these verses. Um, Jesus' suffering begins. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him <coughs> and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, came together and led him into their council, saying, If you are the Christ, if you're the Messiah, tell us. <coughs> but he said to them, I'll tell you, but you're not going to believe me. I mean, this is the problem. He had been telling them. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter. The Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, are you the Son of God? So he said, yes, I am. You got it. You rightly say that I am. It's the first right thing you've said. And they said, what further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. They see his acknowledgement as being the Son of God, the Messiah, as being a punishable uh, offense because they didn't believe who he was. Right there in their midst. They watched the miracle of the ear. They, they all fell down when he said, I am he. You know, ego I me, I am. The very words that uh, are the name of God. We talked about that in Exodus chapter 3. These are the words that when, when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And they took up stones to kill him. And they're here in this garden, he says, I am. And they all fall down and they decide that they want to kill him. I just need to see a miracle, then I'll believe. Well, we'll get into that more later. But no, that's not way, the way it works. People see miracles, they see the power of God, and they can still deny it. It is something that we have to humble ourselves before the Lord and, um, and receive him. And they were unwilling to humble themselves. <coughs> So they rightly conclude that he's the son of God, the Christ, but they then proceed because they do not believe it's true to then ask for him to be put to death and be crucified. So this is the beginning of Jesus' suffering. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll follow the suffering of Christ leading up to the cross, on the cross, and then the resurrection. Great chapters to be reading ahead, but let's go ahead and pray, and um, let's conclude here. So worship team, you guys can come on up. Father, we thank you for this very vivid account of what was going on. So many, so many things happening. Teaching taking place, denying, ignoring, plots, hypocrisy, all happening in these last moments of your life. You being in agony of soul for, with what, for what you're about to face. Lord, we thank you that we get to see our minds are probably spinning with so many different scenes here. But may we just see you as a, the suffering servant of the Lord, coming to redeem us and to wash us and to serve us. We thank you for it. Maybe there's some areas where you need to respond tonight. Dad, husband, maybe you've been far from a servant. And you've let everybody else do everything else. And you've got your 1,000 excuses 
but you're just not, you're not being a servant. You're not being like Jesus. Now listen, if there was anybody that had a reason to not want to be a servant that night, it would have been Jesus. He's about to be crucified. He is in incredible emotional, you know, uh, pain. And yet he's serving. He's serving and he's saying, you saw what I did. If you want to know happiness, you need to do this. Maybe you need to return to the Lord. Peter was told, hey, I prayed for you that you may not fail and you'll return to me. Maybe you need to return to Jesus tonight. He is so wonderful. He is so amazing. Come back to Jesus. He's willing to restore you. He's willing to forgive you just like he did with Peter. We thank you, Lord. Lord, may we learn the value of prayer. May we learn the importance of of spending time with you and being able to stand against temptation. We thank you, Lord, that you are with us. In your name.